0: This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them, spending time with the Blog2Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Chris Mitchell, and he is a writer, a, a team, with his wife, Pilar Guzman. And they wrote a great book called Patina Modern, which I'd like to talk about. And they also have backgrounds in media. Chris, of course, is also a watch lover who has been to Baselworld, the uh, the late Baselworld, many, many times. Chris, welcome. Thank you so much. So you were telling me that you had gone to Baselworld many, many times in your former life in media – um, the show no longer exists. This experience can no longer be had. What are some of your memories of Baselworld? Well, I was a, a magazine
1: publisher for um, about 20 years um, at uh, GQ and Vanity Fair and Conde Nest Traveler and a bunch of other places. Um, and so every year, you know, we would make the pilgrimage to Basel um, to do that, you know, enormous watch show. Um, and, you know, my memories, having been to other trade shows in other cities is that I don't think I've been to a bigger one. Uh, I don't think I've been to one that covers more square feet than uh, Basel World. It was, it was like, enormous and overwhelming, and by the time you came home, your head was, like, swimming.
0: Yeah, I, I think at its high point, you know, they had over a 1,000 exhibitors. Amazing. Yeah, because remember, they had, for many years, you might remember this, there was the, uh, what they called the Far East Hall, which was far away from the <laughs> main halls, which had hundreds in there. And then there was the jewelry and watchmaking supplier halls, which was like yeah, equipment totally. and tools, or like loose gems, and I, those stopped when I first started going. But you're right. I mean, it was an amazing experience. It went on for about a hundred years, and uh, you know, it's it's. I like to talk. I like to have people tell stories about it because moving forward, no one's going to have new ones. Like, do you remember the the Breitling parties? Um, I the brightling parties i don't remember i remember brightling's booth was
1: always crazy cuz it had this you know enormous fish tank in it it um, did yeah uh, did you go what
0: parties w- did you go to what are some famous parties you've been you have to have been some stuff publishers get you invited know, to good stuff
1: I'll tell you, the, 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 the stuff I remember most is that we would always have dinners at um, whatever that, like, you know, big traditional restaurant is, you know, right in, uh, you know, right in town. And, and you know, everyone would be there. Oh, the party I remember is the Movado party, actually. Oh, yeah. Uh, at the Three Kings. Movado for years, you know, took over the Three Kings and always had a huge party there. Um, that was actually the one I probably remember the most. Um, but mostly it was just like we'd, we'd, we'd get up, we'd always stay in uh, Zurich. We'd get up really early. We'd take the car for like a whole hour to Basel. You know, we'd walk the show with appointments every half hour with PR people from 8.30 in the morning until 5.30 at night. And then you'd wind up going to a cocktail party and a dinner and you'd fall asleep, you know, you know, getting a taxi on the way back to Zurich. It was, it was grueling.
0: I, I like that you use the word pilgrimage because I think that's more correct than maybe people might realize You know, you described a situation where you, to attend this show, which needs to be attended, you had to stay in a different city and drive an hour. Like, there was no simple way of attending Baselworth. I had to go through an apartment broker. I spent a fortune to rent horrible, horrible oh, apartments.
1: Terrible. Yeah. yeah and, and of course the, the people <laughs> I felt the worst for were the ones who were stuck on those boats that they would park in the river. And the, yeah. the worst rooms and rats, you know, climbing, you know, on the ropes from the docks to the boat and vice versa. Like I, the horror stories of accommodations because there were so few hotels in Basel, of course, that you know, they were always spoken for by you know, most of the watch vendors. They would make you stay something like 10 days at some exorbitant rate. So we, you know, we did the math and we were like, this is crazy. You know, we're here for three days of you know, just you know, jam-packed meetings. Let's just stay in Zurich where the hotels are nicer and we'll just you know, stomach the drive.
0: Now, the reason I'm really glad that you mentioned all that is, is a great segue into the sort of next topic, which is uh, space and emotion. What we're describing is that the experience and the spaces around the celebration of the objects we like wasn't great. (laughs) There (laughs) were some nice booths, for sure. But being in Basel, where we stayed in Basel, was not a luxury experience. I know that you, Chris, and me and many others have thought to myself, wouldn't this have been a lot better if it was a luxury experience? And you are now what I consider a specialist of course, in exteriors, but also interiors—not just in the way they look, but the motions they give you. How did you? How did you specialize in that direction?
1: Well, That's a great question. You know, we 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 always would joke, you know, myself especially, um, that you know, lots of other guys golf, and I have you know, house renovations instead, um, because for 20 years, you know, starting with uh, our first apartment that we we got in uh, Manhattan's Chelsea neighborhood, which was this estate condition. Uh, great old pre-war apartment, but in, you know, a state condition, as we learned quickly, meant, you know, absolutely horrible condition. Um, and we at the time being, you know, under 30, knowing nothing, um, sort of, you know, just went headlong and tackled this this big apartment renovation and had both. It was frustrating at times, but it was also super fun. And it got me hooked on like, you know, how fun it is to sort of take a space, transform it for yourself and I think in our case, you know, what what's really special is to be able to take these spaces that are well over 100 years old, um, respect and honor, you know, the craftsmanship that you simply can't reproduce today. Uh, don't have the manpower, don't have the materials, don't have, you know, the, the quality of some of the woods and stuff, um, but then also sort of make it, you know, a, a modern, you know, uh, luxurious, you know, experience as well. And so it's that dynamic and that push pull between the two things that I always found super fun. So we did that apartment. We lived there for a few years. We had a kid. We then bought a brownstone in Brooklyn where we still live, where I'm uh, speaking to you from now and, uh, and undertook a two year renovation of this, you know, great 1880s brownstone that hadn't been touched in 50 years. Um, And then a series of houses in the Hamptons. Um, and we like to say that each one got sort of progressively crazier where, you know, the first time we were scared to move a wall and the last time, you know, we moved the whole house. So to answer your question, I think, you know, that, that notion of what is luxury and what is a luxurious experience, you know, for us, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a combination of, you know, you want it to be beautiful. You want it to be aesthetically pleasing. You want to fill it with, you know, in our case, you know, a really highly curated and, and, deeply thought about collection of, of modern antiques, you know, Danish and French stuff from the forties through the sixties, but also, you know, you want it to feel like a home. And that's a big thing that Pilar and I always go back to is, you know, it's not a museum. um, You know, it's not there to impress other people. It's there for you to enjoy. And it's got to have a warmth that can come from the decoration, but also has to come from the way you use the space.
0: Yeah, I want to mention something that I hope you'll agree with about having a media background. You know, you and I have a media background. One of the things that we get as media people is exposure to a lot of nice stuff. We also get to compare (laughs) a lot of it. We become curators, um, browsers of a sense, if you will. And we get to have a sense of identifying the good from the bad as well as where to find things. There's a sort of exposure of all the different types of decor and all the different types of styles that are out there that we wouldn't necessarily know if we grew up and sort of stayed in the same place. And so there's sort of a special ability to understand what your options are that comes from having a media background that would take just so much more involvement. I mean, when it comes down to it, you've developed a whole series of skills that allow you to do it. And at the end of the day, I think as someone who's done you know some home restoration myself, if you don't learn to do it yourself, if it doesn't become a hobby you like, it's nearly impossible to get done, even even at high budgets.
1: I, I think it becomes a lot less fun for people, and I think that falls into two categories. I think people tend to dread the idea of a renovation because they either uh, they have you know what we refer to as sort of decision fatigue, you know, and they think. Someone's going to show me, you know, 100 pieces of tile and I'm supposed to pick one or, you know, 100 different colors and I'm supposed to pick one and you know, 100 different faucets and I'm supposed to pick one. I think people get overwhelmed by the sheer number of choices they have to make. I think the other part that that really tends to scare people is, you know, it is, you know, expensive. They feel like, you know, it involves, you know, uh, the chance for the building to fall down, Um, you know, so this sort of like it's so outside of people's comfort zone in terms of how they think about their handiness. Um, but the truth is, as you said, you know, it's, you know, it, it's incredibly rewarding if you focus on the parts that are really personal, you know, you get to create a space that represents you. And and for us, that's always been a huge part of it. We felt like we never wanted to buy someone else's taste, you know, not because we think ours is better, but because ours is ours. And we wanted to create a home that in every case, you know, were choices that we got to make, um, and, and I think you're absolutely right that we were lucky. We, we got this front row seat because we worked in the, the media and the magazine business that, you know, it was almost Zalig like, like, you know, you got to, stay in great hotels and you got to see um you know behind the curtain of so many things whether you're you know in a fashion showroom in Milan or you know um you know visiting in my case you know when I was a kind traveler I got to go to dubai when they were opening a bunch of those new hotels and you know exposed to things that I never would have been able to it's like you get to you get to sort of live like a rich person without being a rich person and then you get to bring that stuff back and it inevitably and invariably affects your aesthetic and your sense of sophistication, I think, and your point of view.
0: One of the things that you tend to develop is the ability to notice what's nice. And then you have this desire to surround yourself with beautiful things. And in a sense, it almost becomes a compulsion because once you see nice things, it's difficult to go back, right? And then the life becomes this sort of Challenge of having functionality, like you can actually live in this space, but it'd also be beautiful. And that seems to be the challenge, right? It's that right mixture of practicality and aesthetic.
1: I, I totally agree. And we, we you know, there, there are examples, and this is where we have a really good push pull between us, you know, between uh, Pilar and and me, because I will err almost always on the side of like that's sculptural and that's beautiful. Um, And she will, you know, inevitably sort of like rein me in and say, yeah, but you know, do you want to sit on it? And I think the, the, the success, the sort of recipe is, you know, you do want some objects in your house, you know, a chair that sits in the front hall or, um, you know, a daybed is a great example. Um, you know, daybeds are not particularly great to use, but they're such sculptural, beautiful additions to a seating arrangement um, that we think it's worth it. But you got to balance that with things that, you know, a sofa that is actually comfortable, um, dining room chairs that you want to sit on. You know, the, the, the house has to be a place that gives you you know, that sort of emotional and, you know, sustenance and comfort because if it's just beautiful, it's an art gallery. And if it's an art gallery, you don't want to actually live
0: in it. But it's also kind of the, the missions that we have sort of as adults that, that have backgrounds as ours is we're always trying to find that mixture of practicality and beauty. It, it becomes necessary in where we live and, and how we look and what we look at. And it's it's interesting to constantly have to evaluate this mixture, everything you buy, is it pretty enough? But is it functional enough? I mean, clothing, I think for a lot of people is a great example of this because you do need to be comfortable, you do need to move around, but you also don't want to look uh like a schlep, right? You don't want to just sit there and look like you just threw some things on. And it's and you say push pull, I think it's interesting because it's constantly that. It's I want to be comfortable, but I also want to look cool. And that in that it's like in everything in life, from what you wear to the spaces you're into the way you talk.
1: Totally. Well, and I would say, you know, um, maybe, you know, also because the older I get, but I also think the trends, you know, are sort of heading this way, you know, that men have it have it easy in some sense, because, you know, when you embrace sort of a sartorial tradition, you know, you're getting really beautifully made clothes that are not about, you know, fashion. Um, and, And I think, you know, as I found in my career, the longer I was spending in places like Paris and Milan and going to fashion shows and looking at, you know, Stuff and the bouncy on the runway, you know, you could appreciate that there was, you know, art and vision behind it, you know, but it, it does really become kind of silly. Um, whereas, you know, a beautifully cut, you know, wool jacket or a beautiful pair of, you know, trousers or a cashmere sweater or a beautifully made shirt, you know, for men. And I think increasingly we see this now for women who are adopting this, like, that's just a beautiful way to live, you know? Um, and it might not be fashion with a capital F, but it is, it is luxury and it's comfort and it's practical. And at the end of the day, we're always trying to bring into, you know, interior design, some version of that. Like we're trying to create in the spaces we 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 you know make this sense of like you know I don't want it to be what's in fashion. I want it to be a sort of timeless you know sartorial classic, if you will.
0: Now you mentioned uh, budget earlier, and you know look, we're talking about in the context of luxury watches. You obviously have some money to spend. You don't talk about designing spaces if you don't have some money to spend. But it doesn't need to be insanely expensive. I help people get real a little bit about the types of investments they need to make when it comes to sprucing up rooms or an entire place. I I don't, you don't necessarily need to throw out numbers. No, but yeah, yeah,
1: sure. No, and I think, I think it's a really good question because I think the entire sort of enterprise scares the hell out of people. And I would break it down into, you know, I don't know, let's, let's say three, four different things. Let's see where we go. The first I would say is materials. And, and the reality is that the materials that you're using to create a beautiful house are in and of themselves, not terrifically expensive things. Um, and, or let me put it this way, the difference between using nicer materials and what we think of as really crappy building materials, you know, some of the stuff that we saw going into houses in the sixties and seventies. And, um, you know, when we think of sort of cheaper housing and linoleum floors and formica counters and stuff like that, if you're using, you know, marble and you're using, you know, um, you know, your walls and your your paneling, most of that is painted wood. And so the materials themselves are not what's expensive. And the key is, you know, find the level of detail that you're looking for and invest in the workmanship to create that. And again, we're talking in this day and age, you're not talking about, you know, 40, you know, laborers hand carving your walls, like that's not what's going on. So to build a house and build it right and build it with Nice, simple materials, but with a little bit of detail, that's what goes a long way and makes it feel not generic and not silly. You can have a taller baseboard molding, for instance, instead of a a shorter, cheaper-looking one. The cost differential is not much, but the effect on the house is is enormous.
0: Won't you admit... yeah. That it's oh sorry, that it's very challenging to find that type of help. That it's sort of the wild west when it comes to things like contractors, craftsmen, uh people that work on your home, handymen, things like that. Like like it's people are are justifiably freaked out. And again, I don't want to to, to lose cadence on uh, thing, but like I think yeah, it's a no, big it's thing. Everything. To, to talk about.
1: It about. It, it, it's everything to find, you know. I mean, I I have been so lucky because there's a, a, a core crew of guys that I work with out in the Hamptons and I am just in awe of their, their abilities, their, their artistic and artisanal skills are just mind boggling to me in part because, you know, I'm someone with a good eye, but you know, uh, you know, I, I can't do much more than sort of some basic handyman stuff. And so to see the level of skills that these guys, um, uh, are, are, you know, master builders, a guy named Roel Um, He's from um, Guatemala and his entire crew is largely Guatemalan. And, and these guys, you know, it's like, it's truly like a a sort of artisan system where they start out, you know, when they're 22 years old, not knowing much and doing kind of the, the more manual labor on the job and they evolve, you know, as they work their way up into these just master craftsmen. And so, to your point, yes, like the, finding, you know, a crews of, of people who know really how to do this is, is everything. Um, and so I think once you and if you are lucky enough to have that, you know, a group of people who you trust their ability to, to produce what you your, your eye wants um, is everything. But, but I would say if, you, if we go back to that notion, it's like the first thing is, yeah, like invest in a level of detail and quality craftsmanship so that you get something beautiful out of your home. And that's more about finding the right people than it is about sheer money. The second is, I think, you know, I look at, at appliances, like kitchen appliances. And, you know, in, in the context of this conversation, you know, those are the, the fine watch making of your home because, you know, if you buy something, you know, that is, not well-made, you're going to use that stove or that faucet every day. And the difference between a great one and a good one is absolutely a cost difference. And it is expensive. And I would argue that, you know, it's worth splurging and getting the nicest appliances that you can find. Um, and then I'd say the third thing is, is um, your furniture. And you know when we look at furniture, we, we subscribe to this notion that the middle is the mess that you want to go high and you want to go low. You want to invest in case pieces and fine antiques where you can find them. And, you know, there's a whole range of prices and there are deals to be had, but invest in pieces that are well-made that you're going to pass on to another generation because they are made well enough to deserve that longevity. And on the other end of the spectrum, there are plenty of things, you know, we are big fans of certain things from Ikea. We're big fans of... Um, you know, certain things you can find on Etsy from, you know, makers. Um, and I think the key there is don't buy knockoffs. You know, don't don't buy something that's a cheap version of something really nice. Buy an authentically simple thing. Pair it with the couple of things that you're splurging on. And that in the mix is what what makes for a home that you're not going to regret. Because you can always upgrade those, uh, the simple things, you know, as your budget allows and time goes on. But, you know, we find that people make the biggest mistake because they spend all their money in the middle where they're paying too much for things that are of not very good quality.
0: That's very interesting. I think that people who have gone through the process will be able to appreciate that wisdom. I have been, like most homeowners, inadvertently put in the position of having to do things like this. Uh, I've made a lot of mistakes, innocent mistakes that I think anyone could have made in that situation, given the fact that it's very obtuse. Because what ends up happening is when you see beautifully well-done spaces, you really appreciate it. I think that's part of the point is uh, it's easy to get envious to be in someone's home that looks really great and be like, oh my God, my home could never be that way. It can, it just requires the right steps and going about the process. Because when it comes down to it, building a home and decorating a home is just layers and layers of many different little skills. You have to just know about tons of stuff. And I'm sure you, Chris, that's what you and your wife probably do is you probably, between yourself, have to become armchair experts in, like, hundreds of little fields from understanding about paint to floors to weather sealing, just tons of little things. And, you know, you're you're constantly
1: learning, which I think is, for me, what's really fun about it. You know, you're constantly learning the, you know— Crafts and skills of making a home and right from floors and floor finishes and paint finishes and you know lots of Arcadia. Um, and I'm always discovering and learning about you know new schools of, of furniture. You know, I, I just went down a great, you know, I, I subscribed to a bunch of auction uh, websites and aggregators of auctions. And so, you know, just you know, one thing leads to another kind of uh, exploration, you know, you get a real history. So I just discovered something called the Cotswold School, which. You know, I'm sure for, you know, people steeped in antiques, you know, means is, is, is basic information But for me it was totally new. And that's, you know, this school of um, craftsmen making furniture in the early 19th century outside of, you know, in the in the, the small towns of England. And it's just absolutely beautiful stuff.
0: Oh, I and know it's it's a, about.
1: it's a simple example of like one little minor part of you know furniture making tradition. But I've now discovered a couple of these designers makers and you know was first exposed to what the stuff looks like and it changes your eye. And you go, okay, how would that enter into the mix if I put it with, you know, 40s French or you know, sixties Italian or Danish, you know, like and, and and for us, that's all part of the fun is, you know, you're mixing these different sort of periods and schools and, yeah. and countries of origin to create something that is, you know, and, and I, I would say the biggest thing we offer as advice to people is don't get caught up in, will this go with that? You know, oh, I, I, I inherited this antique from, you know, my grandmother, but it, it would never go because, you know, I love this, you know, leather Barcelona chair from Mise Vandereau. And our opinion is... Like those two things absolutely go together, and in fact, the the more you mix, you know, these wildly different things, the more interesting you you create a space.
0: I I want to have your opinion on the idea of um, sort of thinking locally. You know, every region in the world has its own set of antiques based upon, uh, you know, what was made in the area. Because you know, furniture is expensive to move, so a lot of the time. Furniture doesn't end up very far from sort of where it was made or originally purchased, I find. And everywhere in the world, different cities are going to have different types of antiques and things available. And it's, it's, I think people need to think about what's available there. Don't get obsessed about some antique that really isn't that available in your area unless you want to go out and find it and ship it back or, or spend a fortune. Like there's probably a treasure trove in your backyard. You just have to know what to expect based upon what's likely to be in, in, in your backyard. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: I think that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, as someone who spends a lot of time on auction sites, I'm always amazed when you know I'll find an auction house in France that's selling you know an Eames chair, and you know, and you're like, why would I, why would I buy this at auction in France and then ship it back to the U.S. when I'm more likely to find you know a dozen Eames chairs, you know, because they were made in the U.S. You know, it was an easy example, and I think you're you're right about. That's true for the woods, you know, like, you know, the woods from your part of the country, you know, or if you're from California, there was this amazing sort of crafts movement in the 60s and 70s that Warren Escherich and and some of these other designers that you can find um, more plentiful there than you can on the East Coast, you know, and certainly much less in Europe. So. You know, for us here in New York, um, it's a little easier for us to find things, you know, from France and ship them over. Um, and so, I, I'm 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 a huge believer. Like, you know, certain certain things we just love, and we're willing to ship from, you know, in in our case, Denmark. We do a lot of buying uh, over there. But I I think you know, New Hope, Pennsylvania, where George Nakashima was from and built all of his furniture. You know, is an hour away from us, and I'm convinced if you, you know, were to spend some time in Bucks County and other parts of Pennsylvania, you know, you'd find some amazing, amazing Nakashima and Nakashima disciple work um, because it's it's proximate.
0: And where I live in Los Angeles, you know, some of that stuff is available, but not a lot of it is. We have a completely different set of stuff. And I guess my point, it also also sort of goes in watches. People tend to focus on these hyper-popular watches, like, oh, I got to get that one. But watches can be moved around quite easily. And, and doing the same thing, I think, in, in furniture, interior design is a bad idea because unless you have a lot of money and patience, I just feel like it's such a better value uh, most of the time to get what's in your backyard. And you have to know and you have to think local that way because it's so easy to become obsessed with something that like, is fun and nice, but like, isn't it going to be something you can easily get in your area? Like thinking about decorating your home with a bunch of that stuff, it's just going to be a losing battle. I, I
1: think, I think, I think, yes, that's true. But the only caveat I would, I would offer is shipping is one of those things. that's tends to scare people to death. Like, you know, um, you know, for me, I thought about when we first went to the Paris flea market 20 years ago and saw things, we were like, oh, I could never ship that home. I thought and that same thing. Is, and
0: you can do it? You can ship it home? You can do it. And, and I think the
1: reality is, like, it is It is a little – I mean, it's not cheap. It never was. It <laughs> certainly isn't now. Um but it's it's not as impossible a, a, a task as you tend to think when you go there. Like, how am I even going to be, you know? Especially in a country with a language barrier, how am I going to tackle getting this person to figure out a way to ship this armoire, you know, home to me in the United States? You know, and and the reality is, whether you are in person at an auction, you know, or flea market in a foreign country. If it is a big enough sort of operation, like the Paris flea market certainly is, they have shipping companies right there that can help you sort of sort all that out. And we find that when you're dealing with, um, you know, international auctions, as, as I now do quite a lot, um, you know, I found this wonderful shipper in Germany and he's basically gone all over the continent, you know, from, you know, uh, France, France to Rome, to Denmark, to Sweden, to, you know, he's picked up pieces all over, crates them up, puts them on a boat, and a month later, I get it. So you'd be surprised at at how small the world is these days when you need to get something shipped to you. It adds to the cost, of course. And I would say it has to just come down to, you know, the economics of, you know, am I I getting a piece that's really special? Am I getting it for a price that makes sense when I factor in the cost of crating and shipping it? And again, this comes back to, you know, is this something that means enough to me that I'm going to go through that effort because it's it's going to be something I have for a very
0: long time? How big is the risk of loss? How big is the risk of damage for things like that? I, I don't know. I can anticipate that I, there's some risk.
1: You know, I have been well, so, you know, you, you, you get it insured. Um, but I can tell you, I having bought a lot of stuff on eBay for 25 years and having bought stuff, you know at auction and having it properly crated. The problem is when somebody, you know, packs up a, you know, a chair in, you know, styrofoam and cardboard and it arrives with a leg broken because, you know, they didn't do a very good job packing it, frankly. That, you know, it's sort of like, you know, transporting eggs, right. Or seatbelts. It's like, you know, the packaging is everything. And in every case where I've had stuff shipped in a crate, it's been flawless. And I think that's because, they do, you know, I mean the way these things come it's like the crate itself is a piece of furniture. you know it's it's an insanely beautiful and really well done sort of operation. So uh, you know if you're willing to if you find someone good, if you're willing to spend a little money, and if you're buying pieces that are meaningful enough that they're worth shipping, you know to your point, you know it's it's got to be something worth doing. um but i've had I've had very good luck, and i I don't think it's just because I've avoided, you know, bad luck. I think it's because these, these guys are good at what they do.
0: So you seem to be very focused on sort of good habits when it comes to all this. And I'm going to ask you your opinion on a very tricky matter. And that is not the acquisition of new things, but the discipline around getting rid of old and organizing and decluttering, which is something which I think is, is hard for a lot of people. It's hard for me. Um, I know that there's services out there. There's techniques around it. What, what can you say around the practice of just getting rid of stuff? Because I think that there's so much value in starting from a clean slate or refreshing your environments. Our lives tend to get cluttered with stuff. We don't always know what to do with stuff. And I know it's a bit tangential, but it's so crucial, a part of the process. And you seem to have done a pretty good job of it. I'd love that, to hear your wisdom on the matter.
1: Well, you know, it's, 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 it's funny. It's a lot, you know, I, I'm uh, more so than my wife anyway. I'm, I'm, you know, fairly disciplined around, you know, editing and weeding out. And so with clothes, obviously it's easier, you know, you, you, you make little rules for yourself and I now make them for my wife, which I'm sure she doesn't love, which is, you know, like, you know, if something comes in, something goes out, you know, <laughs> let's get, let's weed out the stuff and give it to Goodwill or whatever, or sell it on the real reel is it, you know, if you just never wore the thing, but, but having that discipline around clothes is easy. The 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 dirty secret around furniture for me is I find it much easier to acquire than I do to deascension anything, um, and we have you know been in a position where we've renovated uh, houses and then sold them in order to sort of tackle the next project. And the last two houses we've sold, uh, the, the buyers wanted to buy all the furniture. So it becomes a very easy way to start over when, you know, you basically hand over the keys and walk away. Other than that, and, and if you're not in a position where, you know, like me, you sort of are a serial renovator and a serial collector, um, I, think the, I think it goes back to what I said before. I think if you are buying carefully and you're buying pieces that are of heirloom quality – and by definition, those are going to be more expensive pieces. And so they should be more carefully considered. You know, if you're not made of money, these are things that you you have your eye on. You think about it for a long time. They're holy grail pieces, like a, like a great watch. And, you know, when you finally pull the trigger and, and, and have that, you hopefully have thought about where it's going to live and how it's going to fit in your life and whether it's going to be practical for you. And you'll have it for a very long time. And I think it is the other end of the spectrum that I was talking about when you're buying, you know, when when you're filling in around those beautiful pieces with things that are simpler, you know, my feeling is at some point you put it on the curb and you got to be willing to say, this has served its purpose for me. And, you know, I'm going to, you know, there are sites, as you noted, that will sell your stuff like uh, KO and, you know, you can sell stuff on Craigslist and, you know, but, there's a certain point at which I think it's like you pay it forward and you put it on the street and you let somebody else take it and, or you give it to, you know, one of the many great charities, you know, housing works in New York, you know, we've donated lots and lots of stuff too. And, and that is, you know, that's a freeing up of you to sort of, you know, and you, you do it only when you've got the beautiful coffee table you've always wanted. And you can take the other one that has probably served you very well and, you know, and let it have another life with somebody else.
0: Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch with a message from eBay, a platform I probably use daily. Make sure your watches are the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. I believe it's the first and best service of its kind that protects your luxury purchases and checks each watch individually at eBay's highly reputable authentication partner, Stolen Company, in the United States. From band to bezel, their authenticators ensure each wristwatch matches the eBay listing and is the real deal. Authenticity guarantee is also very fast. Once authentication is complete, your watch is securely delivered via rapid two-day shipping. Surprisingly, eBay's authenticity guarantee service is free for all watches priced $2,000 and up. No one should buy a luxury item without an authenticity guarantee. Do what I do and check eBay before each watch purchase because everyone deserves real. Is it ever a good use of money to hire A professional organizer or a team or a laborer. I I think a lot of people are intimidated by the process and having someone shove them into it might help. I I don't know. I, I know that these people exist. They might be extravagant luxuries or are they actually a good value?
1: I have no idea. I've never done it. I feel like I'm OCD enough that, you know, I, I could offer my services out <laughs> and it'd be, you know, a terrifically fun thing to do. I'd do it for free because, you know, going into someone's closet and or going into their living wow, room and helping them organize it, I, I'll do it in a second because the pleasure it gives you to sort of make a space better. You know, we joke that when I left my career in media, you know, to basically do this, we wrote the book um, and I am spending my time, you know, my day job as it were is basically um, – to, you know, buying and and renovating these great old houses in the Hamptons and then, you know, ultimately we'll sell it in order to sort of buy another one. So I I regard, you know, my my second act as sort of saving these great old shingle-style houses one at a time Um, and then doing all the fun stuff along with that, like, you know, collecting furniture and renovating and so on. But if the notion is that, you know, you don't love your space, and this is why we wrote the book and what we tell people You know, you have it within your power to make that space something you do love. And I think the first thing you do do is you you weed out stuff that doesn't, you know, not to quote Marie Kondo, but, you know, the stuff that doesn't give you joy, the stuff that you never loved or never quite worked or you got it because it fit the bill at the time. I think you got to get rid of that. And I think I think the single biggest mistake people make is when they move, they move a bunch of crap with them that they don't love. And I think like if you're ever moving, whether it's apartments or houses, that is the best time to take stock. Don't just, don't just like, just like you wouldn't take everything in your closet and throw it into a, you know, a box. That's the time that you weed out all your belongings. And I think furniture and rugs are chief among those. Like, you know, do I like this enough that I want to spend the money to move it to the next place? And and live with it. Or am I going to, am I going to like it even less than I do now, which is probably the case. So my best advice is, you know, you, you you need less furniture than you think in a room. And the more space you have for things to breathe, the generally speaking, the better the room's going to look anyway, like declutter, if nothing else, for the sake of just having the room have less stuff in it. And then I would argue, you know, just, just be somewhat merciless. If you don't love it, get rid of it.
0: I want to expand on that because I think that's a great response. And I find the practice of taking an item that you have, looking at it, and like you said, asking if it makes you happy, actually examine your emotional response. If you have no emotional response, you don't need it, it's probably more expensive to hold on to it than just to get it again if you need it later, uh, economically speaking. But what I think is the problem is what I'll call the looking in the mirror problem. A lot of people are afraid of having to examine themselves. And when you go through your stuff, you examine your life history, your emotions. It's an emotional process that is difficult. It's not physically demanding. It's emotionally demanding. And I think it's interesting that probably a lot of people avoid it for that reason. They take that stuff with them from place to place, probably because they want to avoid examining it and and exposing themselves to those emotions, which can be heavy or painful or joyous. By by looking at that stuff and and do you do you think maybe that's that's a big part of it? It's that psychological hesitancy?
1: I think that's very interesting. Um, I you know for me, you know it, it's interesting because when we have done these you know big home projects, you know, and you you know we've we've said whether, every house that we do, we consider the forever house. Um, and I think the difference is that doesn't mean we expect that we're going to live in that house forever, but it means that we're making every decision about that renovation and decoration and, you know, picking every part of that out, whether it's attached to the house or not as, as something that, you know, you, you put, a you know, inordinate amount of time and energy and love into. Um, and when we've, done these big projects and we've then, you know, sold them. And people say, God, is it, isn't it sad to sort of sell the house, you know? And I always think, you know, the house you can always build again, the stuff that's sad is when you sell the furniture and you know that there was that thing that you collected that was kind of a one-off and it is both special to you because it, you know, has some sort of scarcity value, but in many cases, it's special to you because it, it has meaning and memory attached to it. Um, so I think the idea that your stuff carries you know, or, or is a conduit through which you live your life and therefore it's hard to get rid of is incredibly powerful and, and really true. Um, I think that the, the way you, you navigate that, if that's the right word is, you know, you, you are who you are wherever you go and you have to find a way if you want your space to reflect who you are today, to be willing to let go of of the attachment of memory or of meaning for who you might have been when you got that piece. If that piece no longer works for you, and I think this is frankly true of relationships, um, there are friendships that run their course. I, I read this recently and it meant a lot to me that, you know, we tend to put such shame around the ending of a relationship or the ending of a friendship. And I think the reality is it doesn't have to be you know, a negative thing that there are people that pass through your lives that mean a lot to you at the time, but, but they don't necessarily mean the same thing to you now. And I think that's, I mean, it's a probably terrible thing to compare people and furniture, but I think that, you know, being willing to let go of things, whether it's a relationship or, you know, a coffee table is probably ultimately healthy. As long as you don't sever all attachments to everything, (laughs) Uh, having some ability to sever is probably not a bad idea. Uh,
0: thank you for that that tangent. I just thought it was so crucial to this discussion because a lot of people could do the things that that the book talks about that you talk about, but we've all been, uh, you know, in people of crazy lives. I mean, I have I have young children, so I I'm just I know that I can't have the space I want for a reason. There's like a a, a good reason. I, I have to wait till they get older, and then I can have a nicer space. I have art, for example, in storage. Would love to put it on the wall and make the space nicer. But do I want crayons on it? Not really, right? So I'm just gonna leave those walls blank for now. And that's just that's that's just the thing. But I think for a lot of people, you know, uh, like like it is starting any new hobby um, as adults. People are afraid to learn new things and and open themselves up. And so much joy. Uh, can be gotten out of this. This is a hobby that is is really like hundreds of many hobbies in it, and you know watches is sort of an esoteric hobby. But like making nice space, buying antiques that are available in your community, going on eBay and and, and you know looking for stuff. Um, this is all stuff that people sort of need to do anyway. So it's like, if you're going to be wearing clothes, as we know you are, you want you might as well be wearing nice clothes, right? And this is one of those necessary things. It is not, it can be a luxury, but it's part of the human uh, experience right now. at all ends of the spectrum to inhabit spaces.
1: I totally agree. And in fact, I would only push back on your contention that because you've got young kids, you know, you you should be sort of putting on hold this notion that your house is everything you can be. And, you know, while I certainly agree with you that you're on crayons on your art, you know, we you know, we have two now, uh, one in college and one in high school, you know, almost grown children. And from the very beginning, you know, we were really clear about wanting to have homes that not that not rooms that are off limits, you know, not the all white couch with the plastic on top. Um, but we always had nice things and we taught our kids from a young age, you know, like respect the furniture, you know, don't put your you know feet on it. Don't wear shoes in the house is one that we have always subscribed to because we live in New York and, you know, it's a dirty place outside. But. You know, you can teach your kids from a young age when they're old enough to appreciate this, that, you know, these things are special and have some meaning and they're not more important than you are, child. But but you should respect that these are nice. And we, we've always found that, you know, our kids have not babied things, but they respect they respect, you know, the furniture and nice things. And I'd say the second half of that, which is a big part of the book, is that if you have things that get better with age, you don't have to baby them. If you have, you know, the materials that we talk about, like white oak and leather and brass, you know, these are strong, sturdy materials that can take, you know, fingerprints and a spill. And, you know, in most cases, they they get even better, you know, as a nice sort of side effect. So, you know, we always joke that, you know, when the kids are out of the house, we'll start, you know, reupholstering things in silk velvet, you know, because, you know, materials like that, you know, of an orange juice spill is never going to come out. Right. But, but when you're talking about a lot of the materials that we like to work with, I think we can see the 18 years that, you know, our older son has lived in our house with these things and those memories to bring back your earlier point, like that makes the piece better. Um, You know, we can say, Oh, I remember when Henry was 10, you know, and, you know, banged into this thing with, or spilled that thing. And, you know if if you if you accept your home as both a beautiful showpiece but also a breathing living evolving thing then with that comes some of the wear and tear that we call patina
0: that's that's a very elegant way of looking at it it's it's very difficult for people to see damage sometimes uh, i i want to change tack to a, a, another question do most people have too many tools or not enough
1: uh you mean literally tools, like well, like, like
0: like in in the sort of home repair spectrum? I think I know for no, guys, I most people like have to not get enough tools, tools. Not enough tools.
1: Well, you know, maybe that's maybe that's regionally specific because I think if you've got a garage and a basement, and you know, it's really fun for you to sort of you know, it, it's fun. Those are fun things to buy. Um, you know, here in New York, obviously, I think most people don't even have a screwdriver and a hammer, and I'm always amazed at going to you know especially when people have actual houses, second houses, weekend houses, um, how few tools they have, you know, and, and, you know, we're obviously a little bit different, but I think a good set of tools, and I don't mean one of those like starter sets where it all comes bundled. It's like, you know, go to a home Depot and I would buy a couple of key, buy a toolbox, number one. Um, You should have, you know, various sets of pliers, including needle nose. You should have various screwdrivers. You should have um, uh, a a good cordless DeWalt drill, you know, get a hacksaw and a skill saw and a a wood and a regular just straight wood saw. Like, you know, a basic set of tools is, I think, you know, is everything and even if you don't tools have tools are not room, that
0: expensive too they're really no, not they're that expensive. Not, they're not
1: you know and i mean the one that i would say above all else is you know every person man or woman should have you know i i was thinking of this for my kid who's living in a dormant college and as soon as he moves out of a dormant into an apartment i'm going to get him a dewalt cordless drill i think why why dewalt is, you're like specifically DeWalt. well you know it's funny i, I, I yeah sponsor no um i I I don't know. I think well, if, I don't know. Maybe aesthetically I like the way they look too. they there's this great yellow. They make a very compact one. It's just what I've always used. It's cool it's looking. I Milwaukee, don't hate me. I I love Milwaukee. I tend to think of them as such a good heritage brand. It's like, you know, the logo uh, reminds a pair of me of beer beer and, Milwaukee. and I just think
0: <laughs> of like some dude like doing construction while drinking beer. I don't know, it's hilarious to me. It's, I mean, like, it's, it's well it's, made. It's,
1: they're, they're. I'm sure they're it's great the tools. It's the same
0: font as like the Miller, like the Miller. You know, beer. <laughs> I
1: mean, and it's Milwaukee, so you know,
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, you've got
1: beer tradition right there.
0: But having a good power tool for sure, or power tool, power drill. Um, I, 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 for me, you know, I have a yard, so I also got to buy a bunch of like, you know, plant trimming devices. And it's like kind of funny to live out your like weird medieval fantasies. You're like, <laughs> look at this crazy like electric pike that I'm using to trim a tree. Um, it can also be a Zen experience, but it can also be quite annoying, but you're right at the end of the day, the more tools you have, know how to use them at least. Don't just buy tools for no reason
1: well, yeah, you know I mean a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. I think there are are many people and and I say this having advocated somebody getting a power drill, you know there are so many things that you should never screw in with a power drill like you know, where there's too much torque and too much power. And what you really want is just like, you know, I, I, I am now obsessed with all the woodworking videos that show up on my Instagram and watching some of these fine cabinet makers, you know, install, you know, a, a hinge, you know, and painstakingly, you know, screw in the flathead screw on the hinge. Like, and, you know, like the way that people with a real love and craft You know, use their tools is like, you know, it just like it makes you just in awe because, you know, there's no better like respect the process than, you know, people who know that good tools make for good, good work.
0: So what is the next step for you in terms of the thing you want to learn? You know, there's always these more and more and more skills, certain things like how to paint a room properly. I know I'll never do. There's a technique to it. There's an art. It requires patience. I don't have. But you... You know, you have to keep adding skills as part of what you do. What's like the next skill you want to add to your repertoire? I, I think the the
1: the thing that whether I intend to or not, I I always end up you know acquiring you know in, in every job you know every in my case every house that we build or you know, substantially renovate, you you just pick up more knowledge of the process and of the actual you know nuts and bolts and mechanics that go into the woodworking, the detail around, you know, an historic staircase. Um, part of that is you you—you have to sort of educate yourself and learn the history and look into, um, you know, all these sort of like historical technique. And so learning more about where things came from and how they're connected to other historical tradition, um, for me, it's just a, it's a lifelong endless learning. Um, and, and it's fun because of that. Um, what I, what I actively want to learn, um, I have a fantasy, I suppose, you know, some people have fantasies of going to, you know, baseball camp or something. I, I, I would love to go to a place called waters in Ackland, which is a furniture school in England where you go for, I think it's like a one-year course um, cool. And you you literally learn how to make you know beautifully handcrafted you know you like learn oh like 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 fine carpentry like fine wow. furniture we're talking furniture like wood
0: making, making. we're talking Is it furniture wo- making
1: okay and and so you're you will learn to make you know a box you know with dovetailed corners or you will learn to wow. do miters or you learn to you know just that level of craftsmanship um, that I. Don't begin to know how to do. Um, But if I could learn, have one thing, you know, if I'm on my deathbed, I would I would love to spend time in the next, you know, 30 years of my life figuring out how to how to really learn to do. I think that would just be an amazing thing to be able to do.
0: Pitch them a whole thing where you'll do like a podcast and updates about it. You'll promote the program. Make a media thing out of it.
1: I think I more immediate concern, I have to pitch my wife on how I'm gonna go live in England for a year or whether she has to come with me.
0: Uh well, you know, I property prices there could be decent right now. I don't know.
1: In the, in the, I think it's in the Lake District or something, some beautiful oh, little, boy. very sleepy part of uh, of the UK.
0: You'll have to learn a whole new set of restoration skills there. It's very interesting when homes are hundreds of years old versus the relatively not, uh, new state of homes. You know, here here in America, at least on, on the West Coast, here's an interesting question for you: vers- on restoration versus just rebuild. And I think this is really important to talk about for anyone who practically has to do this stuff. I have found. That while it might seem to be the case that fixing something that exists is more efficient and cheaper, actually, it can oftentimes be a, a, a better idea to start from scratch. What is your philosophy on, you know, rebuilding an interior, going down to the studs versus the complicated and expensive and oftentimes unpredictable restoration process? I think
1: it's a great question. And in fact, the house that we are um, finishing right now uh, is an 1865 house in East Hampton um, that we fully intended to to restore. Um, And we knew we were gonna take off this sort of later edition that was not well done and all the windows had been replaced sometime 30 years ago with bad vinyl versions. So we knew we'd have to replace all the windows. And of course, you have to re roof and realign chimneys and all that stuff. And we we realized, even after we had filed for building permits and had all of our plans and were, were underway, that we were changing so much of the existing house that it wasn't, we were going to lift up the house, which is what we do, in order to build a new foundation and a basement and then put it back down. And we realized that we were going to be changing so much of the house that it wasn't worth the time and effort and money to lift it up. That it was better just to um, salvage any good parts that were there, some windows that were the original, um, some of the wood, some of the flooring, and tear the house down. And it was a difficult decision because it's the first time we'd ever torn something down. But you're absolutely right, and I think the the lesson we've learned through doing a lot of painstaking restoration is twofold. One is you have to ask yourself, you know. What is it that I'm saving? And, you know, there are houses that have, uh, woodwork and bones that are so good that it would be a sacrilege to take them out and that you couldn't properly take them out and save them. So there are simply rooms or parts of the house, and in some cases, the whole house, where it really is worth restoring. And even when you say restoring, you are still going to have to build a lot of new to match the old, you know, in our case, everything we've done, that's, that's a real restoration, whether it's, you know, coffered ceilings or staircases, you know, you're rebuilding half of it. You know, you're, you're, you're saving a lot of it, but you're also feathering in a lot of new with the old. And that's the second part of the lesson is if you're doing good work and you've got really skilled um, craftsmen, new work, new build can be as good as old. And I think it's my prejudice and probably a lot of other people's to think that, you know, new work is inherently sort of cheaper or less well done. And the the reality is, you know, fine woodwork and, you know, building coffered ceilings, you know, done new is in many cases as, as beautiful, you know, in some cases better than, than the old. And so we, we are less scared now than we used to be of, of simply starting from scratch, you know, if you, if you, you know, hold yourself to certain principles of restraint, the problem people have with new build is they build too big. They make the proportions of the house, of the room, of the doorway, of the whatever too big, um, or they cut corners. And so you, you just have to be really disciplined about not allowing yourself to, to, you know, make it too big, keeping yourself to a store, proportions and keeping yourself to the quality of historic detailing, And then I think, you know, building new can be, you know, there are examples where we absolutely believe that we have improved on, you know, the architecture that we revere. Um, and I think what we're doing with the house that we're just finishing now is a better 1880s house than 90% of the houses that were built in 1880s, even though I love those architects. So. i
0: mean look there's very few perfect spaces people tend to revere history revere the way it used to be i mean every time a house is made successfully it's a freaking miracle okay so like that a house works at all uh i mean I, I know that for you it's a little bit different but just seeing what i've seen and knowing all the things that go wrong and the defects and things like that like nothing is perfect. So you can always improve. You, so there's always something that could have been done better. Well, and not only like, that, but but show me an yeah. old house. You know, in
1: L.A., they're not as old as they are here, right? But show me an old house that hasn't had revisions and additions and alterations done to it. If it's right. if it's 100 years old, there is, I would argue, you know, you could count on one hand in the entire town of East Hampton the number of 100-year-old houses that have not had and I'm not talking about some bad 70s edition. I'm talking about, you know, quality editions, you know, of an 1880s house that got added onto in 1913 and 1918, you know, like they, they are, you know, they evolve over time. And the thing that we do when we build a new house and the thing we do when we add on or restore an old house is we invent a narrative and that's incredibly important because you have to think, okay, why does this addition live here on this new house? Or I'm building a new house. What are the different parts and wings and, you know, bits and bobs? And if you if you have a logical historical narrative, this was a covered porch that was then closed in over time. This was a bedroom wing that was added on you know, over time. You have a house that even if it's brand new will feel like an old house because it has that... Um, it has the quirks and it has the, the sort of, um, you know, idiosyncrasies that would have happened to a house over time.
0: Well, I think that for me, the lesson is value timeless good taste rather than originality, because originality unto itself is not inherently valuable. And oftentimes, and this is this is, I guess, part of the problem with homes compared to other design objects, is that wear and tear and other factors forces you to upgrade over time. Uh, plumbing, electricity, materials, insulation, appliances, Um, being able to rely on originality is something that is a problem you can't do. And so thinking about keeping it the way it used to be, I don't think it has a lot of value necessarily.
1: I mean, you know, it's the reason that we're absolutely historicists because, you know, for us, you know, I I mean, we love old homes. I think they're really beautiful. It does, you know, and, and I am at heart a modernist. So, you know, modernist architecture, you know, is to me the most beautiful thing, you know, the sort of machine for living, you know, or what Mies van der Rohe did. The problem I have with most quote unquote architecture is that, you know, the architect is trying so hard to be original instead of making it simply beautiful. And, you know, there's a great quote by, um, a friend of mine and someone I really admire, Paul Goldberger, the architecture critic. And he said, um, you know, the, the problem with, you know, you know, humor in architecture. And I think he was referring to some of the postmodern era, you know, is that the joke gets old, but the building still stands. And it's, it's, you know, it's the core difference for me in when you're following trends, it's like, you know, the, the half-life of a trend in fashion, um, you know, is fine because, you know, you, you put the thing in the back of your closet, but, you know, if you are, you know, trying to be above all original or witty or just plain interesting in what you're doing with your house, you know, there's a good chance or, or trendy, there's a chance, you know, a very high, high probability that, you know, that thing is going to still be there and you're going to get sick of it. And, and we apply that to interior design more than anything that this trend that we're seeing right now of just, you know, the same maximalism that we saw coming off, you know, the runways at Gucci and elsewhere, you know, when you apply that to interior design, even, even forgetting about architecture, just applying it to your wallpaper and your upholstery and your paint colors and your rugs, you know, you are going to get sick of that. And for, you know, the, level of celebrity and influencer who are fine to simply throw it all out in two years and redecorate. Number 1, we think that that's incredibly wasteful and a terrible example to set. But number 2, we think that that is setting an example for the average homeowner that they're going to they're going to be stuck with this thing that they can't afford to completely undo and they've put in the really wacky pink tile that in two years they're going to go <laughs> Oh, shit. Um, And we think about that a lot. Like, you know, like we think about this notion that you should be designing a house, not, not boring, but designing a house
0: that is
1: not going to, you know, that is going to stand the test of time.
0: So Chris, I want to talk about an interesting thing that a watch designer pointed out to me a little while ago that really got me rethinking not only watch design, but its application towards architecture and interior spaces. And what he talked about was how, for him, and how he was taught, a watch dial is supposed to actually be a physical space. It has to be so nice that if you were standing there as a tiny object, it would look like a great room with great painting and great materials and great finishes. That's what the human eye demands when it is evaluating the beauty of a watch dial. It is a functional space. But like a bathroom, it can be beautiful or it can be ugly. And a lot of that has to do with the materials as well as the arrangement and things like that. And so now I have this connection in my mind between interior design and architecture, of course, for the outside of the watch, but especially interior design for the dial. Because there's a real analog there. And I wanted to know if thinking about that, that changes at all your appreciation of interior design spaces or watches for that matter.
1: I think that's fascinating. I've never heard that, but I think I think that makes sense. So I, I to me, you know, when you say that, what I think of is, you know, you, you look at the overview of that watch dial, right? And and you're looking at the arrangement of of elements on that dial. So, you know, the 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 hour, minute markers, the hands, you know, uh if it's a chronograph, like, you know, and if it's a chronograph, especially, you know, where are the various other dials? And so the arrangement of all the elements on that single round or square watch face, you know, is in itself, a, a you know, a still life, right. A tableau. That's exactly the way we think about a room. Um, and in the book we, you know, uh, these are my sort of hand drawn little sketches of furniture arrangement in the room. I think that's true of objects, on. uh, a mantle or a coffee table. I think that's true of furniture in a room, that you want to look at a sort of bird's eye view and how those things relate to each other. It has everything to do with whether that room is is a successful sort of tableau of, of, of furniture or that tabletop a successful tableau of objects.
0: For me, that has really permanently ingrained itself in the way that I will, you know, look at watches from now on. And I think that it's a very provocative thing that we'll probably have to talk about more. Chris, can you please tell people where they can learn more about you on the internet and anything else you think they should know right now?
1: Um, Thank you. The book is uh, Patina Modern. Um, The website is patinamodern.com and it'll give you a little bit of background. You can buy the book at pretty much any independent bookseller and of course on Amazon um, where it's been the number one interior design book um, pretty consistently for about three months now. Um, and, um, my wife and I are both on Instagram. Um, and you could follow us at patina modern, uh, patina dash modern on Instagram. Um, and they, from there you can link to our other, uh, handles as well. But yeah, we, we would love for anyone to pick up the book. I think it is equal parts, pretty and useful. Um, not a, not an easy thing. Um, and hopefully we'll, we'll help people sort of get more inspired and feel empowered to design spaces that are clean and warm, uh, spare and modern and ultimately like really
0: livable homes. It is a very cool book. This has been the Superlative Podcast interview with Chris Mitchell. Chris, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.